It's the show for real people doing real work in social media. It's the Social Pros Podcast from Jay Bear of Convince and Convert, featuring Jeff Roars and special contributor Zena Wiest. Presented by Interactive Marketing Hub, Exact Target, and sponsored by Janrain, the leaders in social sign-in and interaction. Cision, giving marketers and PR pros tools to expand their exposure. And Xbeon, social engagement software for world-class companies. Ready to accelerate your social media? Let's get to work. Welcome, everybody, to Social Pros, the show for real people doing real work in social media. I am Jay Baer from Convince and Convert, joined, as always, by my colleague, the man with the plan, the vice president of marketing for Exact Target, and forthcoming amazing author, Jeffrey K. Roars, Esquire. Mr. Roars, how are you? I'm doing all right, Mr. Bear. How about yourself? I'm doing okay. We're missing Zena today, so that's kind of a bummer. She had the gall, the unmitigated gall, to go on vacation, uh, so she will not be on the big show today. But fortunately, we are making up for Zena's absence with an extraordinary guest, our friend Matt Ridings, uh, co-founder of the social business consultancy Sidera Works. Mr. Ridings, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Wow, you're sounding very good, Matt. That's That's sort of a dulcet kind of a tone you've got rolling out there uh thanks very much wow that is soothing that is very soothing style jazz <laughs> you you and tom webster ought to go uh ought to go mono a mono with the jazz <laughs> DJ no, I, I don't think i could uh, compete with mr webster oh he's the man of a thousand voices he's he's kind of he like is. frank caliendo but actually funny it's it's something um so Tell us a little bit about what you think the the state of social business uh, is today. Kind of where are we at in evolution? Uh, Michael Brito, who, of course, you know, and Jeff knows, uh, had a guest blog post on Convince to Convert yesterday, sort of talking about social business evolution. Uh, I'd like to get your take on that. You know, it's been a few years now. Where do you think we are? Well, it would have helped if I read, uh, you know, I always read Convince and Convert. Of course you do. Um, every day i just happened to miss it yesterday um well i mean social business evolution is always behind where i think it is <laughs> so uh, as we find out every time we go into a client uh, i mean the good news is it's actually caught quite a bit of traction this year um we're still struggling with implementation uh, much more than we are used to. It was, you know, stand in front of a client and say, trust me, this is what you need to do, you know, uh, and convince them that you had it all figured out. And now that part's a lot easier. I mean, there's a lot more stats out there now. There's a lot more companies. We've got a lot more clients under our belt in which we've proven it. So that part's easier. Implementation is still very difficult, not because of belief anymore. Uh, it has more to do with where do you start, you know, and that's the struggle with most organizations right now is where do you start? If you're talking about a holistic thing across your organization, you know, something that touches all departments, the reality is most companies don't have people in place empowered to make those kinds of movements. So you still have to figure out, are you, if you're starting in marketing, how do you drive that? into something that can be more holistic if it's in customer service or how do you tie all those pieces together in a central way that makes sense for the organization. So that's where we focus most of our time. Um, you know, we have this this great cartoon that used to be used for, um, I think it was for debunking intelligent design, actually, but <laughs> it, it's got this chalkboard, you know, and, and there's the one guy, he's got all these equations on the left on, on the chalkboard and, and that's sort of the what we call the current state, and that's us bitching about, you know, what companies are doing wrong. And then there's all these results, you know, on the other side, and that's us talking about, the, you know, this is what you could be if you did everything right. This is the long-term vision. The problem is, is you know, there's a big gap in the middle between those two. Yeah. Uh, how do you get from point A to point B in, in a meaningful way? And and that's where I think the largest gap is in social business evolution right now. There's not enough people talking about the how. Um, there's plenty of people talking about, you know, why you should do it, the benefits of doing it, um, and talking about the struggles of companies who haven't done it, trying to deal with the new pace and everything that yeah. social media is driving. 
but very few people talking about the how. So that's where we focus right now is, is really on putting in place the things that are uh, working and fessing up to the things that we thought would work and don't um, and you know, learning through that process. So that's where we're at. Let's talk a little bit about about that how and and you still have circumstances where prospective customers or just people that you come into contact with are, are are confusing or lumping together sort of social media or social media marketing and in social business. And if so, can you sort of delineate those for social pros uh, listeners? And I've got a, a question as well about the about the how process. Sure. Um, so the answer is yes. Uh, they're constantly confused and. To be honest, it's it's as much um, the other consultants and consultancies and agencies and the vendors in particular who are muddying those waters. Um, we spent a lot of time in the beginning trying to define social business. <laughs> you know, when we first launched, we'd spent about four months trying to build this definition of of social business. But I mean, to narrow it down, the way we look at it, and I'm sorry if I'm sniffling in the microphone. I'm a little six but the way we look at it is is it's broken into two pieces and so there's the implications of social media uh, meaning all the pressures that are being applied to companies to move faster to move quicker to be more connected because uh, if you have a PR crisis the reality is is marketing can't just deal with that alone they've got to bring in HR legal PR so there's all this interconnectivity that's got to take place inside the organization which is where we think social business is really focused so that your external side can be effective so there's that piece of it and then the second piece is really dealing more with uh, the technologies and constructs of social itself so things like what we used to call knowledge management, um, collaboration, innovation, all of those pieces around evolving an organization itself. Um, that's really the second piece of that, and technology being the enabler uh, and the notion of social in general um, inside the organization. So we really look at it as an internal-facing thing that enables more effective external communications. So that's our definition of social business, really, is those two pieces. Do you think that it's possible for companies to be good at externally facing social media if they don't have uh, that internal culture of collaboration and and sharing and the things that social business brings to light? Uh, the short answer is no. Um, I, I really believe that if you can't be great uh, internally, then it's going to be very difficult to stay great externally. Now, I'll caveat that and say that, um, you know, in the beginning, we all dove in from a marketing standpoint, because it was a new medium, it was a new platform, a new place to reach an audience. Same thing with customer service, which came next. Uh, now you're starting to see a lot of movement in the social sales space. But the reality is that can't last. Um, you know, you hear about the words transparency and authenticity being used quite a lot in the social media space. And our argument would be that as transparency evolves, that it's really a forced transparency. Uh, you know, you see all of the nightmares that happen to companies right now with stuff that slips out by employees or a CEO who says something online and, you know, and then all of a sudden turns out that he's leaked some state secret that he didn't realize. And uh, the SEC's coming down on him for saying that uh, he's doing insider activity. So, Transparency itself isn't something that I think a company is going to be able to choose. I think that as more and more people become more comfortable online as they get into social media, that information comes out, it becomes an issue. So if that's the case, our argument would be that transparency isn't something that uh, you're attempting to become. It's can you afford to be transparent? So unless you've changed the inside of your organization to the point where when something becomes transparent or if you yeah, that it's not scary. Yeah, that it, right. I mean, that's the goal, right, is is you don't have a choice in this as far as we're concerned about whether well, it's like not. in your neighborhood, the people who let their garage doors stay open, people whose garages don't look like shit. Exactly. You know, if you're going to peel away those layers, if you're going to let people peek inside the organization, then for God's sake, there better be something good to look at or you're in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. 
There's the there's a stripper analogy there uh, somewhere that, that we'll have to work on after hours. Yeah, we we will definitely work on that. <laughs> so it's like kind of like the difference between uh, a repair metaphor and a remodel mm-hmm. metaphor. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's like if if your floor if you want to put a new floor in your house, the likelihood is you're not going to go in and replace it with exactly the same linoleum. Do you know what I mean? It's like what's yeah. the point? It's the it's so it's a remodel issue in the sense that this wasn't working or there was a dent in this or this is broken. So it's you're not going to go in and do the exact same thing. You've got to do it in a new way, in a different way that's more updated for what you're looking for now, which is a different way of doing business. Would you say that because this social business transformation and that journey is dependent upon sort of the current scenario with each company, their culture, their organizational principles, their leadership style, et cetera, that the work you and other social business consultancies have to do is, is seems to me to be pretty customized that certainly there are elements of it that apply across the board, uh, but that you really have to come in with a, a fairly distinct and specific solution and, and roadmap for, for each company that you work with. Is that true or am I making too much of that? No, it, it's it's true. Uh, it's a pain, but it's it's true. And finding that balance has really been a challenge, um, to be honest with you. So, you know, we started out with um, our ideas of what those frameworks would be. I had already spent about two and a half years building out frameworks at that point for what I thought uh, would work in organizations. But the reality is you're trying to find this balance between flexibility um, for each organization, yet you need to have enough structures and experience and processes in place that you can let a company jump over the potholes. And, and that's really what our job is, is to be able to go in and say, look, you're going to have a unique solution. right? There, for every organization, depending on whether they're multinationals and what countries they're in and how they look, we're going to have to have very different approaches to the cultural initiatives, change management, all of that. However, there are some commonalities between organizations that we know exist and we know where those potholes are because we've been through them before that we can guide you around. And so we're letting you leap over a few of those to get there much, much quicker. And, and so that's really what we're doing. So yes, on the one hand, every job is custom. But on the other, there are commonalities. And, you know, when you look at things like um, the need for centralization of disparate groups within an organization, the need to connect HR and PR and legal together with marketing and customer service and sales so that you can start getting those infrastructure roles like IT and legal to go across an organization much more in tune with the roles that are touching the edges of your organization, like marketing. And so getting those flows in place, those knowledge flows between those pieces um, are common. That has to happen. And so while we can't tell you how, um, each time in an organization that's going to happen, we know it has to happen. So that happens differently in certain organizations. In, In healthcare, where we focus a lot, and in financial services, we do a lot in the regulated sector. You know, that's a very different place because regulation means governance and it means a very different level of collaboration. It means a very different level of uh, implications on the marketing side. Um, So we try and map out cultures to what's going to work, but we know the common pieces that have to be there. And that's been honestly our learning curve over the last couple of years is trying to figure out what are the commonalities that we know we can do every single time with an organization to get them started? And that's why you saw at the beginning of the year, we finally released a lot of what had been our private workshops for clients started going out into the public. So we had gotten them to the point to where you could put five different companies in the same room. We can do a workshop with them and it will mean something to them and be effective for them to go out and work every day. But it took us that long to get to that point because we had to, figure out what will work for every organization, what's meaningful to them all, pull out those pieces, standardize them, get them right. Um, But you're absolutely right that the rest of it is, you know, company dependent. This is uh, Jeff. Um, The recovering attorney in me is very interested in the, the legal part of this conversation. Have you seen 
an evolution uh, with regard to the lawyers who sit at the table in terms of their, their openness to embrace uh, what you're trying to help your clients do, or does there still uh, seem to be kind of a resistance for fear of the unknown? Um, definitely been a change, um, but I'll be honest with you, you know, not to take too much credit for that, but we've, um, a lot of that is changing the dialogue itself, and, and I feel like we've been very successful at guiding the legal side of organizations to become much more effective in that space. And I'll give you a quick example. So um, the reality is, is, you know, so if, if you've got background in the legal space or, Jay, you've done millions of contracts uh, having run agencies before just like I have. So the, the reality is, is lawyers and an attorney in the legal function within organizations uh, their job is to mitigate risk. That is their job. And that's why you find two attorneys between organizations during a contract negotiation, sometimes spending weeks on something that means nothing to the end result, but they're battling to see who can get the least amount of risk into the contract, right? Even if it's risk over things that may never happen or even have a chance of happening. So what we try and do is get them to the table and make them a part of that conversation and change their point of view as well as with their leadership so that they know you know we have to have their bosses involved in it as well to where the conversation switches from how do I mitigate the risk to instead trying to look at it on a balance of scale so how do I is this risk worth the reward and I think that's where people have failed with legal in the past is they haven't been willing or able to have that conversation with legal that talks about the reward side of that in a way that makes sense to the executives in charge of the organization so that there's a, a choice being made at the table versus if I hand a contract to legal or if I say, hey, legal, we want to be able to turn around, um, true story, had a, a, a pharmaceutical client who to say thank you to someone on their Facebook page would take them 25 days. That's a true story. Wow. And that, because it had to go through legal and PR and there's implications because if I said thank you and that person had said something like, wow, I love your drug, it really took my headache away and it turns out that headaches are off-label for that product then they've condoned that, right? So there's all these implications that go into that. And now that's down to about three hours. But you've got to get to the point at which legal understands not just what's going on and the implications and the risk, but people haven't been really playing the side of the fence that talks about the reward involved in that and whether or not it's worth it so that the executives can sit at the table with legal and say, yep, thanks for explaining the risk to me, but I think it's worthwhile and it's worth my yeah. opportunity is worth more than the risk. And so we, we have certain workshops that we go through that involve the executives and legal uh, as well as the marketing side to make both people's case for them. And as long as legal has heard the executive say, I heard the risk and this is why the reward is worth it, then all of a sudden you have a partner in legal versus someone that you feel is a roadblock in legal. And, and that's a different, you know, it's definitely a, a different change in mindset. Um, but we've been very successful at getting there, even in these yeah. regulated sectors. Yeah. Well, it, it, and that's interesting because just harkening back to my own law school career, that's that's not often, you know, what they're teaching you. Um, you know, they're teaching you to kind of assess worst case scenarios, uh, not best case scenarios. And um, <clears throat> you know, a lot of times you get very young, kind of inexperienced uh, folks on the front lines of some of those conversations. Um, so it's interesting in that what you're trying to do is you know, both um, input a kind of uh, philosophy and the structure into these companies, but you're also ending up educating their own people uh, as you go along. Now, with that in mind, I imagine that the success measurements as you work with clients or as you try to take them and, and embrace the social business concept evolve over time. Are there things that you you look kind of in year one of an engagement that, you know, here are the things we want to accomplish and then do they get more mature and more specific over time? And you know, can you share with some folks, you know, what are some of those 
those KPIs that you might be looking for uh, across the, the engagement as it matures? Sure. Um, I'll, I'll tell you that most of the work that we do is on what I would call the enablement side, so the, the internal side of that. So versus uh, we don't really work with a campaign orientation, for example. So normal marketing KPIs um, that get very campaign-oriented wouldn't interest us very much, for example. Um, but what we would be doing is looking at things like engagement levels within an organization. Um, if we're doing a pilot, like we're doing a pilot at a healthcare organization right now, and, and there's only three departments involved in that pilot, or actually even three segments of departments involved in that, and they've made significant investments uh, like most companies have in what you want to call a collaboration platform or knowledge platform. It could be SharePoint, it could be Jive, whatever. And in most cases, those deployments aren't seeing the results that they half the time. Actually, they don't even have defined goals. Uh, they just put the technology in place and think that makes them social. And so we go in and we try and help them figure out, all right, what does adoption cycle look like? What are the drivers and, and what are the key performance indicators that are going to mean that you've made progress in that area outside of just uh, we have more people engaging because we have clients who say, uh, we, we force our people to post blog posts uh, to the company blog or whatever, which doesn't really work. So we definitely have KPIs in regards to engagement metrics internally. But we're also mapping that back to what we see as progression in cultural aspects. Um, we built a system last year that uh, probably one of the things I'm most proud of and spent a lot of time and a lot of money on it. Um, proving it out, but basically it's a, it's a culture mapping and culture measurement tool that allows you to go in and say, what does this organization look like right now um, in regards to its cultural traits? Uh, there's open traits, closed traits, innovation traits, regulation traits, you know, all, the, there's 112 different traits that go around this. And what we're trying to do is say, this is where you look like today, and instead of saying, something is positive or negative, which we find is, a, is the wrong approach, we try and say, which area do we need to shift into, right? So if you need to be more innovative or if you need to be more collaborative, then these traits need to increase over here. But there's a natural pull against those other traits if you want to do that in the control and regulation space and the governance space. So we're able to map those very, very quickly and regularly and cheaply with an organization that allows them to say, our efforts, which used to be very soft, and you just had to say, trust me, hey, our employees seem happier, our culture's better, now are actually a very hard measurement. So we can say in these three months, this initiative has helped move those traits in the right direction, which then led to these improvements in connection ties between marketing and customer service initiatives or marketing and legal or progressing those timeframes in response times down from 25 days to the three hours, right? So we map very large, high-level goals down to those smaller pieces that would be the performance indicators for us um, because we have to have short-term objectives too. Changing a culture takes years. That's the reality to get it to where you want yeah. it to be. And executives move their money around. If I haven't shown them, you know, if I haven't shown them results within 12 months, 15 months, that movie's going, that money's going to go somewhere else. So we also have to break it down into something quick enough that's going to allow them to say, this is working, this is being successful, we're getting to where we want it to be. Um, and what we found is that culture was a real barrier to us in the beginning because we couldn't prove in a short time frame that what we were doing was impacting that in the way that they wanted. And so we built a system to do it. So maybe one final question on this. Let's, let's say that you know um, someone listening to this is, a social pro an organization where they know that the, the organization itself could benefit from um, moving towards more of a uh, embrace the, the, the social business philosophy, connecting all these disparate parts of the organization, but they're not necessarily in a position where they've got the budget to go out and you know hire someone to assist with the process. Yeah. You know, based on your experience, um, for someone like that, what is what are the one or two most important things you think they can do to just get the ball rolling to, uh, you know, maybe in, in the right direction 
um, and, and start you know building up some of the uh, uh, organizational appreciation uh, for what can happen. There, are there any uh, magic bullets or you know anything consistently that you you find that folks in those positions can bring to the table or there's no yeah I mean there's no magic bullets but I can tell you where we start a lot of times and where we recommend companies start a lot of times is is in something that is very simple it's very comprehensible um, and that's scenario modeling or what we call social scenario modeling we have our own system for doing it but anyone can do it and it's very simple. All you're doing is saying you're asking all of these what if questions. You were talking earlier about worst case scenarios. Um, same thing here. Like what if X, Y, Z happened? And there's plenty of things to pull from the news. Uh, you don't have to guess. You can look at across the board and see what's happening to other companies uh, on the negative side with social media and say what if this happened? Now the beauty of that and why that sounds uh, almost too simple is that the only way, what you find is the only way to actually solve and put in place a plan with policies, processes, and governance to plan for that eventuality, for that scenario, is to bring a lot of different people to the table. It, you know, I can't solve this problem without legal, without PR, without IT. And so all of a sudden, just going through the exercise of those scenarios starts making connections that go way, way beyond the need to solve that problem. It starts making the, it starts educating the people around that table. We were talking about legal earlier, where there's a great example. They start understanding social in a new way. They start understanding the implications of social in a new way. And, and that's really what uh, is important about that exercise, not just the fact that you end up with a plan to tackle a scenario. At the high level, at the executive tier, the best thing that's going to make a change in your organization in regards to store is, is stories. Uh, I know that sounds also very simple, but if you, you know, there was there was an old case where um, in, in a legal company, you know, it's all about the billable hour and and the, the executive sitting around the table and he's telling a story about one of his female employees who came into work the day after she gave birth. Now. There's two ways that story can go. You know that that story could either be uh, holding her up as an example of someone who's so committed, which is usually what happens, right? Look how hard worker and 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 how committed this person is. She came in the day after she gave birth, but that has implications, huge implications, because now everyone believes that's what's valued within the organization is some, you know, over the top, uh, an unhealthy level of work ethic. Um, or that story could go, you know, what are we doing that this person felt like they should be coming in the day that after they gave birth? Um, it's not good for our culture. It's not good for organization. It burns people out too quickly. We lose our best talent uh, within a couple of years if we take that approach. So stories themselves have massive impact within an organization, not just on the outside. We're always talking about stories with marketing and, you know, everyone needs to become a media company, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is the stories inside that organization trickle down throughout an organization and create more change than almost anything else you can do. Well said. I'm going to tell you a story about the sponsor of this podcast. It's a story about ExactTarget. Awesome. A world leader in interactive marketing software powering the email, web, mobile, and social programs of more than 4,600 companies. ExactTarget, Jeff's company, has a new downloadable deliciousness guide called the mathematics of social marketing in order to be effective social media marketers need to implement the same types of digital marketing tactics that e-commerce and search engine technologists have used for years in this guide you will discover how to create measurable strategies for social media customer conversion you can download that now for free at ar.gy slash math that's all lowercase ar.gy slash math I will also remind you in Zena's absence that her firm Expion, uh, a centralized platform that helps major brands manage and scale their social participation, uh, is underwriting uh, a portion of my best-selling book, Utility, Why Smart Marketing is About Help, Not Hype. And if you go to iTunes and review this year podcast, 
honestly, please, uh, and just uh, shoot me back an email. I will send you out a signed copy of the new book, courtesy of the good folks at XBeyond, xbeyond.com. Sent out a whole batch of books uh, this morning to people who uh, reviewed the podcast since last week's show. Thank you very much for your participation and your support of Social Pros. I appreciate it. Jeff, do you have a social media stat of the week? I do indeed, Jay. Um, we are recording this on uh, the 7th, and on Tuesday, August 6th, uh, Facebook had a press conference uh, about their news feed um, to reveal what they've been doing and how they've been evolving that uh, particular product. Uh, believe it or not, this will make you feel old. The news feed's been around for uh, uh, seven years almost. And uh, as we know, it's been a, a, a source of contention uh, at some point, a, a source of much joy. And as mobility has taken over people's lives, it's become something of a, a daily read at different points of the day as you try to catch up on um, you know, people's lives and uh, perhaps the brands or the news sources that you follow. Um, it was interesting because yesterday they revealed that uh, they're no longer um, relying on edge rank. Um, that's not what their, uh, that, that algorithm is no longer fully in play. And there were some other stats around that that I thought were kind of interesting that I would share for stat of the week here. Um, first of all, as they approached some changes to the news feed, what they had discovered that it was that people read about 57% of the stories in their news feed on average. Um, and that means that they're not scrolling or exploring far enough to see the other 43%. And I think read is probably a strong bit of language. I think really what Facebook usually is indicating is more of a reach type of number, right? That as I scroll past and am I at least seeing kind of headline, you know, who, who has posted something, what is it? And I may not read the whole thing, but at least it's getting exposed to me. Um, they want to bump that number up. And so they've been testing a variety of different things um, because another stat that was interesting, and I, Jay, I'll, I'll be interested in your thoughts on this. They're saying that on, on average, the, an individual is, has the potential to be exposed to about 1,500 different stories a day on uh, Facebook. Um, and again, what they're discovering is, is that people scroll down and stop, they're missing a lot of posts that might be highly relevant to them. So they're now going to be implementing something called story bumping, where basically the second time you log in in a given day, it may elevate posts that are uh, from earlier in the day, from friends, but uh, algorithmically they determine that those are high-value posts either because of the number of likes or the number of interactions or the type of person that it's from in your life, and they're going to elevate those to the surface. So statistically, they're really looking to bump up that, that uh, reach number. They're, some of the coverage is calling it, again, reading but I think it's really truly more of an exposure number. Have yeah. you actually seen this in your news feed today? So uh, interesting in that, you know, that is, I think that's uh, an ever-changing environment. I don't think Facebook will ever be done leaking the news feed. Um, but, you know, interested in your thoughts as you've, you know, monitored EdgeRank's evolution and, and um, you know, ultimately the news feed evolution uh, as to whether, you know, you think that's kind of the right direction to go or, perhaps uh, if further evolution is needed. As a Facebook user and shareholder, I think it makes a lot of sense because my interpretation there is that the rich get richer, right? If the post is doing well and rings up a, a large number of likes and shares, et cetera, then Facebook is going to over deliver that because they assume that if some people find it interesting, more people will find it interesting. Uh, and they are also the way I read those tea leaves, diminishing the, the sort of linear nature of Facebook, right? That, that the fact that this is brand new uh, is, is less important than the fact that they believe it to be relevant. So they are curating around topic and historical connection more so than curating around time horizon and, and timeline. Uh, sure. I think that's probably pretty good as well. As a marketer, it concerns me a little bit because uh, you know, the rich get richer, right? So if you have a very big loyal audience on Facebook, you will get an even bigger loyal alert audience. Um, and if you don't, it's going to be even harder to climb that mountain. I also feel like one of the byproducts of this will be even a, even a greater sort of disintegration of, of 
you know, the content on Facebook, which has already gotten to be pretty cute puppy video style because that's what works, right? That's what gets likes and comments. And when you get likes and comments and shares, that's what makes sure that your post gets seen. And and this whole thing becomes a a race to the bottom from a content uh, perspective. And, and I think the, the unintentional consequence of this will be a lot of brands creating a lot of content that has nothing to do with their brand just to be able to get attention. But where does that attention lead? What is the yield on that? If I can put yeah. whatever I want on Facebook, I can get likes and shares. I can do that tomorrow. But am I actually going to sell something eventually? That's that's my concern. That that Facebook is is essentially saying, yeah, go with that, right? Do do funny stuff, do crazy stuff, do quote unquote viral stuff. Um, and I get it. I suppose they got to find a way to deliver something to somebody. But uh, I am concerned that Facebook will be will continue what I believe its journey right now is, which is heading down the MySpace path, which is it becomes just a cacophonous mess. Well, and that you've hit upon what their primary challenge is, right? Because with, with great success comes more challenges. So they're going to have more uh, content and volume in the pipeline. Um, and how do they ultimately you know, suppress or um, aggregate that so it's not inundating people's feeds? I've, I've got a uh, a guy that I met years ago at a search engine conference, really nice guy. I haven't seen him in years. We connected early in the days of Facebook, and he has a unbelievable propensity to post uh, about four articles in a row and just fill up my newsfeed if I'm looking at kind of all friends. And I've been playing around with it because I don't want to completely suppress posts from him because occasionally I get something of interest. But, you know, I'd love to see them kind of aggregated when you get those high volume right. people that are posting. And I think um, that's why I don't think the evolution is going to end for them. They've got the, this is a very analogous to the problem that you know, Google had when people began to you know, understand, oh, more links equals higher rankings. <laughs> right. I think I'll go right. get a whole bunch, I'll buy a whole bunch of links. Yeah. So you know, the analogy here is, wait a second, you know, kitty, kitties and BuzzFeed articles, uh, you know, get a lot of likes, get my stuff seen, huh, I think I'll post a lot of those. Um, it, you know, it's, it's different, but again, analogous, because um, again, the success is going to, to yield a lot of challenges for them. But um, I don't know. I, I wonder how many people really had a problem with newsfeed. Uh, I wonder if this is if this is more Facebook's problem with newsfeed. There's not enough. Oh, I think there's no question. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, right. I think it's really their issue. Like, how do we continue to to serve up a relevant cross section of all the posts that are intended for you? Uh, I mean, there's just there's too much content to fit through that pipe. So they got to figure out what goes through the pipe. And so, um, you know, they actually they don't talk about it, but they adjust the algorithm all the time, like every day. The same way that Google adjusts their algorithm every day. Uh, it's just that now they've actually come out and said, yes, now we're making some changes. But, you know, when you yeah. when you actually read that press release, I, I, I had this I put this comment on on Forbes, uh, who I saw the article on yesterday. I'm like, well, this sounds exactly like the current edge rank. Just Facebook says, don't call it edge rank anymore. I mean, it's the, the mechanics that they that they talk about are really similar to the mechanics that we've already had. Um, just some slight changes in terms so of the bumping. So you think it's the same kind of structure behind the scenes that just not calling it edge rank any longer? Yeah, which is a very Facebook thing to do. Well, here's yeah. my question for you, Jay, if you don't mind me flooding in. So, I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned like the, the ultimate goal of everything here, which is conversion. So at what point do they start taking in at least final external click-throughs into account for that edge ring versus just general engagement of, of likes and viewing a picture or whatever? So if you want that individual to go somewhere else, it would seem to me that as a business what you're looking for is for your stuff to be seen if it's something people are clicking yeah. through on. Yeah, precisely. Um, so, if, you know, as a business, at some point, that's what I'm looking for. That's how I base success right. on whether I keep right. buying ads. Well, yeah, so that's exactly I, right. Yeah, Facebook doesn't, as far as I know, uh, Jeff, correct me if, if you see something different there, but they, but clicks has never really been a big part of the algorithm, right? It's been likes and shares and comments, uh, yeah. partially because some content, in fact, in many cases, a lot of content on Facebook doesn't include a link. But you're exactly right, Matt. I would love to see Facebook move more towards a Google-style uh, algorithm where the percentage of people who click that link, you know, helps drive how many people people see it, as well as the efficacy and relevancy of the landing page behind that link. And it would seem like they could certainly charge more money for that. But anyway, 
Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm all I'm, I'm all for it. Uh, I, I would I would gladly pay more dollars um, for a cleaner, more behavior driven environment than less dollars for let's compete against puppies. Yeah, I mean, I've always said I could put porn on my site and drive a lot of traffic. But yeah, it doesn't get me tons of likes. Yeah, that's right. You know, well, and, you know, it's interesting with this conversation, guys, because I I, I do believe this is where it takes. Uh, strategy and management to push down that brand philosophy to the people who are on the front lines of Facebook to understand that it's not okay just to do whatever we need to do to get attention. Here's what our brand stands for, and we should be posting content that right. you know fuels engagement around that. And I think we have a lot of folks who are you know very very empowered on the front lines with very very um, perhaps little experience or exposure to what are those top-level brand discussions or the overall vision of the company. And they think that their goal is, you know, leads, opties, traffic, you know, these things. And so they will do anything and everything to get that. And at the same time, they'll end up damaging the brand. And, we, you know, we've seen a couple of examples of that in the last couple of weeks. I mean, you always see it in social media, right, where somebody oversteps the bounds of brand. Um, you know, we could talk, you know, the perfect example is, you know, we could talk about the whole uh, Chipotle group, haha, mm-hmm. right, with, with their, their um, 20th anniversary celebration and their quote-unquote fake tweets, which were part of the contest of discovery around that. But, you know, 1% of their Twitter followers understood that. 99% of them didn't. And the press lashed onto that yeah. and saw it as fake tweets. And lo and behold, the team behind it was they knew that that could get misconstrued, but they were willing to take that risk. And they got a, a lot of criticism from people who you know, felt like the brand, that's not the type of thing that brand should necessarily be doing. So Interesting um, historical footnote. Interesting, yeah, interesting historical footnote on that. Uh, Joe from Chipotle was one of the very first guests ever on the Social Pros podcast. And I was looking at the analytics for Convince and Convert over the weekend and uh, had a significant bump in uh, visits to the show transcript for Chipotle uh, on that day. Interesting. So we should consider getting him back on. Yeah. yeah. We should consider getting him back on because that that's a prime example, I think, of the challenge today. I can understand why they do it, but I think there's a valid conversation to say, do you you know, if you're Rob Peter to pay Paul in that situation. Yeah. You've or you end up being a news brand. station in L.A. or California, wherever it was, who posts about the woman who got ran over and died uh, on the boardwalk down there. Yeah. And at the bottom of the story says, click like to send condolences. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, there's, well, there's, I, a, there's a lot of ham-handedness to, the, to social still, right? The, the sentiment doesn't always match up. <laughs> well, and you're right about the emphasis on brand, Jeff, because, and I rail about this all the time, so I will, I will briefly leap upon my soapbox. Yes, I care about behavior because that's just the way I'm tuned as a marketer. But what we, what we almost never acknowledge sufficiently is that the people who are interacting with your brand on Facebook are largely already customers or fans, right? It's not like uh, Facebook is the world's best customer acquisition vehicle, like creating customers out of thin air. Um, you know, the, the stats show that 71% of the people who are fans of a brand on Facebook are current or former customers of that brand. And, and of course, that's true, right? You don't go to Facebook and randomly surf around and find a company page and say, I don't know what these guys do or what they sell, but I'm going to click that like button. It doesn't work like that, right? right? So so Facebook fandom is a trailing indicator of, of uh, uh, connectivity, not a leading indicator of connectivity. And, and what that means to me is that most of the people that you're interacting with on Facebook are are already in the choir, uh, which makes that sort of brand consistency even more important because they already have had experiences with the brand. Yeah, and and I don't necessarily, I don't want to give the wrong impression that I blame folks necessarily in the front lines because a lot of times they're just not given that directive from the top down. Um, it, it could be because of lack of understanding uh, at the executive level of how the different social channels work. Um, it could be just poor communication, or it could be that, the brand isn't confident enough in itself to draw those very hard lines. Yeah. But I think we're going to have to start drawing some of those hard lines for our companies to make sure that we don't spill into areas we don't we don't want to be. Because the, the Chipotle example is is a prime example of the tabloidization of of marketing coverage, and that everybody latches onto the story as bits and pieces of the truth and 
um, and they run with it, right, as an example. It immediately ends up in PowerPoint. And I bet you the truth of that story is somewhere, you know, outside of the, the column inches that have been devoted to it so far. I'll see if we can yeah, get Joe back on the show. That, yeah, I would argue that, um, you know, a lot of that has to do with, with culture itself. It has to understand what, what do we stand for as an organization, what are our values and our principles, and has that been pushed down all the way to the bottom so that good judgment's being used in the first place? Yeah, well said. All right, Matt, let's ask you the four of your information questions. We'll go through these quickly so we can wrap up the show uh, on time. I will remind everybody that uh, another one of our fantastic sponsors are the good people at Jan Rain, who provide social sharing, social login, and social profile data collection services to lots and lots of big brands. Uh, they've got really, really cool technology. I did a webinar with them yesterday. I loved it. Uh, we all want to, of course, collect data on our websites, but there's really no point to that if the data itself is crap. Uh, JanRain has a new free guide that uh, shows you how to improve your conversion rates and your data quality. Great tips in there. Uh, a lot of things that I haven't thought of in the past. You can grab it now for free at ar.gy slash better registration. That's ar.gy slash better registration, all lower case. Okay, Mr. Ridings, first question for you. How did you get involved in social media? In social media, um, <laughs> uh, Twitter for sure. Uh, I denied Facebook for years. Um, I don't really remember. I was already in marketing, um, and in, I was in late nineties in uh, at the company that founded the term relationship marketing. So all of this seemed like the same old, same old to me. Right, so it was just about taking relationship marketing to another level and having a new platform to do it, and psychology and sociology behind it, which was part of my background in innovation cultures, just drew me in like a magnet. Excellent. You've been doing this for a while now. Um, what what do you like best about social? Uh, well, what I like best about social is having access to like-minded people uh, in terms of curiosity uh, and experimentation. It's very rare to be able to have a dialogue uh, with people who are pushing the boundaries of certain areas. Um, as you know, living in Indiana or me in St. Louis, uh, it's difficult to find the pool of people in which you can have that kind of dialogue. Um, and it's served a great purpose for me there. Uh, and it's brought me a lot of my business partner, your ex co-author, um, was met through social, uh, you came through social. So it, it's been, uh, really, really useful. And, uh, for me, gave me access to the people I needed access to. Conversely, of course, what, what do you like least about it at this point? I know that's a long list, but we'll try and we'll, we'll try and <laughs> that we'll try one. And yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a bit of um, I, I get really uh, annoyed with with social in, in general sometimes, just from the standpoint of uh, it's really difficult to pierce the barriers of reality sometimes in social in terms of people who they are really. Uh, what they're doing, or the people that you know for real, and then you watch them out there uh, spewing stuff that you know they don't believe, or that they're taking customers for a ride, for example. It's uh, yeah. that's tough to watch. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the curated self, right? I mean, it's it's not reality; it's yeah. what version of reality you choose to put out there. And you know, I struggle with that myself sometimes. Like, you know, it's which is all of us. I it's mean, it's always good news, right? You never take the picture of you rolling out of bed, kind of hungover, like, "Hey, here's my Facebook photo today." I mean, it just you know, it's uh, it's a challenge. There's 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 a measure of artifice to it all that I think bothers you if you have any kind of a conscience. Without question, and and that line is different for everyone. Yeah. Um, but and neither good nor bad. But that's it's a difficult place to uh, to gauge sometimes. I'm very much looking forward to your answer to the fourth and final question, which is if you could do a Skype call with any living person, who would it be? Um, any living person, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Nice. That's a, that, I haven't had that one on the show before. And a very wise individual. Do you want to expound upon that for people who may not be familiar with Neil? Um, well, both, both an astrophysicist as well as 
incredibly funny gentleman, which is a rare combination. Yeah, the funniest astrophysicist ever. I think we can stipulate to that. Yeah, I mean, the guy, even if you didn't know he was a physicist, just incredibly interesting. He understands a lot about a lot of different topics, Not whether you can go whether that's quantum physics or whether that's astro, uh, which, which I have an interest in. Um, but he's just a genuinely good, interesting guy that you feel like you could spend hours and hours with and have great conversations with. And, and uh, I don't know, for some reason, the guy just appeals to me tremendously. And uh, I think he's got a lot to offer in any space you can imagine, whether that's business, the future, where we're going, why we're going there, why people do what they do. He killed Pluto, but I forgive him. You know, it's fine. Hey, it is what it is, right? I mean, if it's not a planet, he is, you got to. He is the guy on the. He, he is the guy who was on the committee that killed off Pluto, you know. But uh, he got a lot of crap for that. There were kindergartners all over the world yeah, writing letters yeah. who sent him letters about that. But uh, yeah, I just think the guy would be incredibly interesting to talk to. Let's get let's get him on the show. We can make that happen. I know we can do that. We'll we'll sick Xena on him, and I we we'll have a whole episode about how come you killed Pluto. It would be great. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Greatest episode to make that happen. Matt, thanks very much. That was uh, terrific. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Congratulations on the success uh, that you're having with Sidera Works and uh, richly deserved. And thank you for being so uh, thoughtful with uh, your time and your answers here today. I also want to remind everybody before we close out this week that our uh, show is brought to you by the good folks at Cision, a leading provider of software services and tools to the public relations industry. If you need to know who's talking about your company, if you need to know the key media and important influencers in your category, you need Cision. Uh, they now have a free content marketing kit that will help you get the most out of your brand storytelling. It's a pretty good resource. You can grab that for free as well. Download it at ar.gy slash content kit. That's ar.gy slash content kit, all lowercase. Matt, thanks again. Mr. Roars, who do we have on the show next week? I believe we are working hard to get one Mr. Brian Solis. Well, Mr. Brian Solis on the show. Well, good. We'll keep in this kind of social social business uh, theme. That will be fantastic. Also want to talk to Brian about his uh, his newest book, um, WTF, and what's the future of business? Because it's a, it's a different, if, if you've seen it, it's a different kind of book. It's almost like... It's almost like a mobile app in hardcover form. It's a really interesting uh, package. And, and so I want to talk about that. And uh, he's now, I think, a four-time author. So we'll talk about the future of book publishing. Uh, he and Charlene just put out a small book on uh, seven strategies. That's right. Yeah, ebook, uh, Seven Strategies of Social Business. And they actually did that uh, with uh, with Wiley, I think, with Jossie Bass. So that's an interesting cool. Uh, execution as well. Good reminder. Okay, guys, thanks very much. Thanks to all of you for listening to the show. Remember, send me your review and I will fire you out a signed copy of Utility. Thanks to the good folks at Xbeon. Until next week, I am Jay Bear. He's Jeff Rowers. We'll be joined uh, by Zena, I think, next week as well. Take care. Thanks for listening to Social Pros, the show for real people doing real work in social media. Please tell your friends about the show. Subscribe via iTunes or Stitcher and view all episodes at socialpros.com. Until next week, thanks to presenting sponsor Exact Target, as well as Cision, Janrain, and XPI. Now, get back to work. <laughs>